as you get better, your opponents get smarter. So you have to keep, you know, strategizing better and better. So here's the point I'm trying to make is you're making high amplitude movements. So it's a workout. You're having to become more and more skilled as your opponents get smarter. And you have to be thinking all the time because you have to strategize. So it's more like a sport, right? You're doing cardiovascular exercise, you're becoming skilled, and you're having to think, right? And it's all very immersive. And, you know, what patients tell us is that at a certain point, they begin to feel that they're not looking after Bandit the Dolphin, they're becoming Bandit the Dolphin. Hi everyone. Before we get started, I have to plug a few quick things. First of all, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available to order. You can read some chapter previews by following the link in the description below. Our sponsors, ExpressVPN, get 35% off 12 months of ExpressVPN and get 25% off podcast hosting with Podium. Finally, if you're watching this on YouTube, please go check out odyssey.com instead. We are hosting all our videos there. If you're a creator, you can move your videos across with one simple click and you can earn cryptocurrency simply by watching videos and use it to tip your favorite creators like myself. So please check that all out if you want to support the show. Anyway, here's the podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am talking to Professor John Krakauer, who is currently the John C. Malone Professor of Neurology, Neuroscience and Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and the Director of the Brain Learning Animation and Movement Lab at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine. Wow, that's a mouthful. Um, do, do you use that at parties? Yes, yes. It's on my card as well. <laughs> so... I am here mainly to talk to you about, about some of your work and research into the brain and neuroscience and the ideas of, of neuro rights. So I was, I was looking at some of your stuff um, over the past week or two, and I was interested in this idea that you have that there is potentially a difference between learning and practice in terms of how the brain uh, functions and, and processes it. So do you want to like start by giving us an example or a, or a definition of neurologically speaking, what is learning and, and what is practice? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, just to take a step back, I mean, we, we were, we, you know, on the science side, our lab's very much interested in motor learning and, and, and in particular in skill acquisition. Uh, and then what that leads to is, well, what's the difference between being a, having a skill versus being a true expert? And, you know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, as you know, kind of bastardized, if I may say, the 10,000 hours rule taken from a psychologist, very famous one, died recently, Anders Ericsson, who had been extremely interested in how you become an expert through practice. Okay. Now, where that gets complicated is that if you want to be an expert violinist or chess player, and he studied violinists and chess players, that's years and years and years, right, to become an expert. Whereas if you're a neuroscientist in a lab, you can't do experiments that last years. Right. So you study more simplified tasks in the lab where you can say that someone gets skilled at that task, but it usually takes hours, if not days, maybe weeks. Okay. So you have the whole psychology and neuroscience of skill in more short-lived lab-based tasks. And yet there's an abyss, it seemed, between that and the huge amount of time it takes through practice to become an expert who makes the big bucks of your basketball player or a musician or anything like that do you see so in other words that led to seeing people saying well maybe there's a difference between sort of the learning that you do in a lab to get a skill that takes a short period of time versus the special thing that happens if you practice for years to become an expert and indeed Anders Ericsson in his work distinguished between practicing something short term and the deliberative practice you need to learn something long-term. And 
to be very honest with you, the science of that difference is not fully understood, right? It, it's, there's a gap and we haven't crossed it yet. I hope that made sense. You know, it does. So when you're trying to study this, when you're looking at different parts of the brain that are, say, activating when you're practicing this or, or you're doing a particular movement, is the same part of the brain being used when you are, say, first trying that movement or skill as it is once it becomes like a more built in like to use yeah yeah no, right, use right muscle memory is maybe not the right term but you know what i'm getting at yeah muscle so we can talk about that right so what you're talking about is something that's been of huge interest is this notion of automatizing things that first and i always give this example i think it helps you know the first time let's say you have a six digit atm number Right. And the first time you go up to the ATM, you have it in your head, you go, okay, this is my number. And you somewhat slowly type out the number. But you know, a few weeks later, you don't even have to think about it. Your finger just flies across the keyboard and you're doing it. And actually, just to tell you how distinct this is, is when it was six digit ATM numbers before everyone switched to four digit ATM numbers. I would actually, when I traveled to Europe from the United States and the configuration of the keyboard in European banks is different from the configuration of the keyboard in American banks. So I would actually no longer know my ATM number. My finger couldn't do it. And I had forgotten the actual explicit number. In other words, I'd automatized to the point that I no longer knew my number. So I would actually have to pull up on my phone a... American ATM, type out on the American ATM on my phone, learn the number again, and then apply it to the ATM keyboard in Europe. So that is a very stark representation of the fact that you can have an explicit, slow, deliberative version, and then it automatizes, right? Um, now, people have been extremely interested in knowing well, what is the neural basis, the brain basis for that transition? And the, the, the answer, the honest answer is we don't really know, right? Uh, certainly the sort of canned story is that the more deliberative thinking-based parts of your brain, your prefrontal cortex lights up when you're doing that deliberative stage, and then that begins to die down and you begin to see activation both in premotor and motor cortical areas and in subcortical areas when you automatize. Um, quite frankly, I think that that story is a, a placeholder at the moment. Um, I don't think that we really have a proper bead on it, um, but it's probably true that there are differential weightings of parts of the brain as you make that transition from the deliberative slow phase uh, to the overt, uh, the, the overt phase to the automatic phase. And there's been huge arguments that the best athletes are just automatized robots. They're not thinking, right? That you've just automatized everything and that's why you're good. And I think that's entirely incorrect. Um, I have been interviewed most um, explicitly was in 2013 when a journalist was writing a cover story for Time magazine on LeBron James and wanted to call LeBron James a genius and called me several times concerned, was he allowed to call LeBron James a genius because wasn't he just a giant automatized set of muscle memories that you shouldn't use the word genius for an athlete, unlike for you know Mozart or Emily Dickinson or... Einstein. And um, the point I'm making is not just an opinion, it's based on the neuroscience. That's entirely incorrect. That just because you have automatized bits doesn't mean you don't also have thinking bits, right? So LeBron James is always strategizing and thinking and picking and solving at the same time that he can marshal his automatic bits. And that's true of a mathematician. That's true of a musician. It's true of an athlete. It's this perfect combination of your cached automatic policies combined 
with ongoing deliberation. And in fact, if you see someone like a Nadal being interviewed after a match, he remembers every single point and every single decision that he made. He's more cognizant of what's going on, mm. right? So yes, people study that transition. Do we really understand it? No. Uh, but in the end, when you become expert, it's because you can mix up thinking and doing in this way. So you're saying that, that that's that's an interesting concept that 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 sort of hyper focus or even arguably or you know purportedly automatized decision making movement is is actually making them more aware of what's going on as they do it. Because I don't know, sometimes when you watch, say, like sports documentaries about um, like basketball or football or or a tennis or any anything like that, and you see the the players discuss the the the, the movements that they made in these crucial seconds of a game that took place forty years ago, and they remember it like it like it's right Precisely, there, like it was yesterday. Exactly, exactly. In other words, they're more nerdy. Right. And it's precisely because they've automatized the lower level bits that they can free up their thinking for the higher level bits. So, for example, you know, I take squash lessons until COVID and, you know, I would be worrying about my foot placement and the nature of my backhand. That's where I was focusing my thinking. So I couldn't think about the next point ahead or what my opponent was doing or what was the nat- you know, the ball was hotter that day because it was a hot day, mm. whereas the squash coach could do because he had all those lower level things completely cached and automatized he could devote his thinking to higher level things Mm. so in other words just like this conversation i mean you're not worrying about how your lips work and how they pronounce the words that you're wanting to say they just automatically come out and you can just think about what it is you want to say but if you had to suddenly start worrying about how do i coordinate my lips and my tongue to say that word, I can assure you, your thoughts would just shut down. I mean, no, I am thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, in other words, it's precisely because you've got these things automatized that you can actually devote yourself to thinking. And that's the way I think you want to think about expertise. So can we learn brilliance in, in your mind then? Because I... I I used to think that that there was just talented people, and okay, they had to work hard. But you know, there was the, the it was the talented people that would get to that top world class status of of whatever field you we were talking about because of talent. And then uh, I, I read a few books by by Tim Ferriss, um, who is very much of the idea that you can learn to do anything, right? Um, so, so where do you stand on that? Yeah, uh, right. So, you know, and, to be brilliant. Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think we quite know what brilliant means. We can get to that. When it comes to things like brilliant, genius, creative, um, we can get to that in a minute. I mean, but, you know, there has been, you know, Anders Ericsson, um, you had, you know, there were these two books, you know, you had, you know, and, and Anders Ericsson inspired Malcolm Gladwell kind of idea that you could just practice your way to anything. Right. And then on the other hand, you had, you know, like Epstein's book, The Sports Gene, where some people were just genetically predisposed. Right. And it, there was a showdown over this um, basketball player who became a long jumper or something like that. And it was, you know, it was this really an example of practice or was it an example of talent? Um, there's been a lot of controversial back and forth about this, you know, and I think in the end, unfortunately, you're going to be bored by this, is that there's a lot of variance in achievement that cannot just be explained by the amount of practice that you've done. It becomes fuzzy because the practice people can always say, well, they didn't practice as well. In other words, Anders Ericsson has this notion of deliberative practice, and it's a fuzzy notion. So it's so fuzzy that you can always say, well, they, these two people practiced as much, but this one became a champion and this one didn't, but they didn't practice as well. You can always just escape into that, that their quality of moment by moment practice is inferior 
And the, so the practice argument can escape. Now that doesn't seem very satisfying. So there are people who will say there has to be something else other than the amount and quality of practice you did. And then another thing is psychodynamics, this idea and, you know, I actually was asked to review several years ago this study that was done, which might interest you, on Olympic medalists and world champions. They basically wanted to ask why it is that some people who go to the Olympics get medals and other people who are good enough to go to the Olympics don't. Right? Now, there are three potential answers. One is what we discussed, that they didn't practice as well. The other one is they just weren't as talented. Let's just call that genetic. Um, and the third was that they didn't have the same life story. And so it was very interesting that they basically looked at people who were medalists and, and wanted to see what gave them their determination, their grit. And it was very much a kind of Luke Skywalker, Spider-Man, Superman kind of story, that they had some kind of early tragedy, some sort of hardship, like losing a parent, like Bambi, right? And then, they, and then they met a mentor that made them realize that they had the force, right? And it was very interesting that in this study, and it wasn't a huge number, it was like 25, they claimed that there was a disproportionate number of this Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of dynamic in the people who meddled versus people who were good enough to compete but didn't. So in other words, I would say at the moment, we have that triad of quality of practice, how long, how much. This notion of talent, which depending on the sport, has to be a component. If you're not tall, you're not going to become a basketball player. right? Uh, and this notion of psychodynamics, life story, and grit. And I would say right now, we don't know the exact weighting and contributions of those pieces to expertise. I mean, thinking that it's a, a mix of those sort of three aspects is probably the most satisfying answer. That seems like the most intuitive one, at least, that, that it would be a combination of. And it seems like the, the data certainly at the current time would support that, that you, you simply cannot definitively just rule out two in favor of one of them. Mm -hmm. So a lot of your work has been um, based on 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 trying to on neuro animation actually as a as a concept. So do do you want to like define what neuro animation is just be before I go any further and we go into the video games? So I can make yeah. Sure I'm talking about I mean, the right so thing. that is. Um, I wanted to take the sort of learning skill framework and apply it to rehabilitation. Um, and. What I was aware of is that the animal literature, the, the, the neuroscience literature going back a century, um, had shown quite dramatic responses in, in monkeys and then in rodents to intense training regimes after injury or neurological disease. That was one. The second thing is that for the last 75 years, there's been this notion of enrichment, where if you put rats in cages with toys and friends and places to explore, you see more brain plasticity than if you put them alone in a cage. Okay, so there were these two things. If you give a monkey a stroke and its arm isn't working and you force it to use that arm for many, many, many hours a day for weeks on end, you can get dramatic return of function. And in the, in, in the mouse and in the rat, if you put them inside very playful environments, their brain shows more plastic change. So you want the foreground of practice and you want the background of playful environments. Okay. But that, neither of those ingredients, the enrichment in the background and the high practice in the foreground was ever done for humans. Rehab was much more short-lived. It was in boring hospital rooms for much shorter periods of time. So, the, so I needed to think of a way to create the human version of enrichment and high doses and high intensities of practice, that combo. And the intuition I had when I was writing this grant was that video gaming might be the way to combine fun and enrichment with actual practice. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, so I obtained that grant and then I moved 
from Columbia to Johns Hopkins. And then I went looking on the main campus because I heard that there was a video gaming minor that you could take as an undergraduate at Johns Hopkins. So I thought that I was going to find some nerds that I could recruit to build this video game. So it was quite deliberate, you know, it was quite thought out. I didn't really have a sense of what it would look like. And then I met, you know, these two kids, I call them kids now, they'd kill me. But, you know, one was finishing his PhD, Omar Ahmad. The other one was doing his bachelor's in computer science from Meet Roy. And I don't need to say how I met them, but I had this sort of meeting with them at Hopkins on the undergraduate campus. And there was this immediate mind melt, right? Because they had been thinking about movement-based gaming. Uh, they heard what I wanted. And, and I don't mean this lightly. I was kind of lucky to meet two nerdy geniuses, right? And we teamed up and we realized that you needed to create a new kind of animation where instead of it just being drawn animation and flipbook like most games, right? In other words, when you do a roundhouse kick with Batman, you know, on your PlayStation, you're not really doing a roundhouse kick. You're just pressing a sequence of buttons and it just plays out the drawing. Do you see what I'm saying? That's not gonna work, right? You needed a true soft body physics engine, emergent dynamical creature that you actually had to learn to control the way that you learn to control your nonlinear arm. So what neuroanimation ended up being was this notion of mapping the movements of your body onto a creature with its own emergent physics. And you had to learn that mapping. So instead of doing the shortcut, which most games do, which is to make you feel skilled, but in fact you're not, Hmm. it's just played out in the actual drawn movements that are coded for. You actually had to genuinely master but not your own limb. Imagine you were suddenly given a tail and you had to learn how to control this tail with your brain, right? You'd have to learn and master it. It's, you know, you'd have to learn its dynamics. You'd have to learn its response properties. But instead of having a tail attached, you just have this, in this case, a dolphin with its own physics and you have to master that through movements of your body. So neuroanimation is really about that mapping between your body and another body and having to learn it through exploration and play because there are no simple rules. Okay. How, how intuitive is that learning have you found? Um, because for, for example, just, just something that springs to mind is uh, when say you're, you're a tennis player, a squash player, or even right up to like race car drivers, um, you know, formula one people that, that, they you feel like you you have a physical connection to the the instrument that you're using be it right. like a tennis racket a golf mm-hmm. club a car even that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, how intuitive do you think that that ability to understand the physics motion response of something beyond our body is do you think it's something that we find quite quite easy well it's not easy right and and you know it takes you know decades to be a tennis player, mm. right? So in other words, um, it, you know, the word understand is a bit loaded because does that mean that you sort of overtly understand how you're doing it or do you just through practice sort of implicitly learn it? Mm. Okay. Um, you know, whether it's using a fly fishing rod, right? Or, uh, or any kind of tool to a car, to a creature, to your own arm, it's difficult, right? It takes time to learn that mapping. And you learn that mapping through practice without perhaps ever having an overt understanding. In other words, you know, basketball players don't have to have degrees in physics to understand what they're doing, right? But yes, I mean, I would say that, you know, Omar and Pramit, when they were building Bandit, um, they were very much aware of the gradations of awareness that you would have to have to really master its movement through the water. Now, as they were really inventing a kind of neurosport, and it's very important to understand that difference, right? In other words, 
games are not the same as sports. You know, you buy a game on your PlayStation and you master it, let's say over a series of weeks, and then you toss it aside and you buy a new game. Whereas if you go and play soccer at the weekends, you do that for the rest of your life. So it leads to a very interesting question. What's the difference between a sport and a game? And what they did was to create a video game, which was really a sport, because you have to continuously over time master this, right? So it's very interesting, that difference, right? And part of it is because they didn't cheat, right? You, you actually had to learn, as you say, the tool or the creature that you're interacting with. There's no shortcut. So I want to get back to that difference between a game and a sport, but I, I, I'm curious before we go further as to as to what, what exactly these kind of games look like. So is it, could you, could you perhaps give us, uh, give us an example of one of the games that you've developed and, and how, say either what part of the brain body or entirety are you, are you, physically using in order to to take part yeah so i so you know i my, you know when i'm not doing sort of neuroscience my you know my clinical specialty stroke and my interest was you know um the hand and arm and so the goal was to try and get people to get back because when you ask people what they most want back interestingly enough is they want to be able to use their arm and hand again right so as i said before if you take a rodent and you give it a task to pick up pellets hundreds and hundreds of times, and you make it do that task in an environment where it's also able to play and explore and be with its friends, that combination leads to a remarkable return of function of that reaching movement, right? So I want you to repeat that, right? But I didn't want it to be something boring where you just reached over and over again for a glass 500 times. No one's going to do that, right? So you basically needed to make them make the movements that are useful in tasks without in fact doing a task. So you wanted them to practice capacities rather than tasks. And those capacities could be reassembled later once they'd achieved them into tasks. So we wanted them to sort of babble by making all the movements you need of everyday life, but you didn't realize that you were doing them because you were too busy steering the dolphin through the ocean. Right? So the, so basically imagine you in, in, the, in the stroke version, um, you have your arm and your arm steers the intentional direction of the dolphin. So in other words, the dolphin is in this ocean. Um, it can swim away and towards you. It can go left and right. Um, and you begin to discover in 3D with your arm that you can make it move away towards you left and right. And the directionality of the dolphin towards fish and sharks is controlled by your hand, the lights are down, there's music. So you don't even see your arm. You're basically jacked in to the intentionality of the dolphin. It's very beautiful. It's, pos it's almost amniotic. Uh, the, the, the movement of the dolphin, the, you know, what Omar and Pramit did is extremely beautiful. I mean, the quality of the animation is extremely high. In fact, Ed Catmull, the president of Pixar visited us Right. In other words, because it really is a high end experience. Um, so imagine lights down, music up, your arm. If you're a stroke patient, it was actually weight. The weight of the arm was supported by a exoskeletal robot. The robot wasn't assisting you to move in the direction, but it was just making you feel like you were in a lower gravity situation. Um, and then you basically have to learn to control and steer the dolphin in order to catch fish or to avoid sharks. Um, and as you get better, your opponents get smarter. So you have to keep, you know, strategizing better and better. So here's the point I'm trying to make is you're making high amplitude movements. So it's a workout. You're having to become more and more skilled as your opponents get smarter. And you have to be thinking all the time because you have to strategize. So it's more like a sport, right? You're doing cardiovascular exercise. You're becoming skilled and you're having to think, right? And it's all very immersive. And, you know, what patients tell us is that at a certain point, they begin to feel that they're not looking after Bandit the Dolphin, they're becoming Bandit the Dolphin. So in other words, it almost becomes a kind of transference or embodiment into the ocean. Mm. And because you're in the ocean and moving continuously, you've gone from land with your broken 
movement to the ocean where you actually feel, even though you could get better, kind of skilled right from the get-go. You're actually quite a graceful dolphin. Right? So that's what it's like. It's, it's quite gorgeous, actually. Mm. Are you using um, virtual reality or, or actual reality headsets? Yeah, I mean, people, we, we always get that question. Um, so what we've done so far is it's been either big screens or projection onto an entire wall. Um, in studies that have been done most recently, screens are as immersive as, as VR. VR has a number of downsides. One is that it's, that it, the, the headset is intrusive. Uh, people over 65 aren't particularly fond of it. Uh, you can get cyber sickness. Um, it can get in the way of other medical equipment. Um, so we've played with it. We're not in any way against it. Uh, but we prefer you being aware that you're in a gorgeous space. And we would ultimately, we feel like AR is the way to go. Right. That you're in a space and, you know, like a giant upgrade of Pokemon Go kind of idea. Right. Um, but so for that reason, um, we're not convinced that VR is the way to go, um, but we're open to it and we've played with it. Ultimately, we're willing to go wherever we think the immersive, holistic sport will feel best for the patient. So you talked about the difference between a game and a, and a sport. And I'm curious why that aspect, aside from, say, in terms of distracting someone from, from the movements that they're actually making in, because they're you know, lost in the game and the flow state or, or, or whatever you want to call it, that what, what is it that, that neurologically do you think is useful about the the gamified aspect of this in in terms of of neuroplasticity and 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 recovery what is what is the game providing us yeah that's that a very way? good question and we always get asked that i think it's actually multifactorial in other words first i think you need to do something which is beautiful social and emotional in other words, it makes a difference if you're doing something that has that aesthetic and social quality, right? It's not that inspiring if you're a patient to be working in a sort of on linoleum and white walls and rubber mats and balls. It all feels very institutional, almost prison-like, right? It's not exactly uplifting. So you want something that is, you know, what I always say is if you're going to be sick, you might as well enjoy it. Right. So it's the unbelievable lack of taste that is so prevalent in medical environments. Right? We somehow feel like if you're ill, you don't have high aesthetic requirements. I mean, it's, it's terrible. Um, it's almost like a form of puritanism. Um, we also know from a lot of work that if you're in a rewarded uh, environment and you're enjoying yourself and you have in motivation, that you actually get better bang for your buck per trial of practice. Right? I mean, there's a lot of work showing that you know, you, you, you actually make a more skilled movement if you're rewarded at a target than if you just reach for the target without the reward. It's quite profound, actually. So motivation and reward in the form of points or just sheer endogenous enjoyment improve the quality of practice. Finally, you want people to make movements where the practice is on the, as I said before, the capacities the building blocks of movement rather than on a particular task. Because 
what we've learned about motor learning of tasks is it suffers from what's called the curse of task specificity. You learn how to be good at that and it doesn't generalize. Mm. Whereas if you learn capacities, you can recombine them for many tasks. So you want a game that is a non-task based task. A non-task based task. Uh, and also we know that the combination of cognitive challenge and movement is very valuable. You're not just repeating movements, you're having to solve the problem each time. Um, so that's a, a big part of it. And also we know that physical activity, in other words, cardiovascular challenge and high amplitude movements are actually beneficial as well, mm -hmm. right? So you need to, it's for all those reasons, you want to do something immersive uh, and multimodal and non-task based. So how much do you think there's the, the possibility, say in the future to, to tailor the games to the patient? How, how, much, how much difference do you think it makes as to, as to what the, the game is or what is the task that you're performing in, in incentivizing patients to, to yeah no that's a, that, that's another very good question right in other words i think when people ask me this question i i always try and make people realize that you need to be able to be comfortable with the fact that there are general universals and particulars okay let's take language right you may have a friend who speaks french and somebody else who speaks german and french and german are very different but fundamentally, they're not at all different as far as the brain is concerned, hmm. right? They, 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 as Chomsky has pointed out, they have a universality to their grammatical structure. Okay. So using that example, you could say um, that sometimes I want the game to be German, sometimes I want the game to be French, but they're both languages, <laughs> right? And actually, Omar Ahmad, one of the inventors you know, you know, one of the three of us, you know, he always uses a very interesting example, which I think is quite interesting. He says, if you have a stroke where you lose language, the traditional way would be to try and teach, if you're an English speaker, is to try and train you back in English. He says, what you should really do is be immersed in Chinese. Right because there you're going to have to practice the capacity of acquiring a language in general versus the English that you already had in its particulars. So he likes to say our immersive environment is like an English speaker being made to recover in Chinese, right? Because it might actually promote a more general recovery. So the general idea is any nervous system disease, whether it's dementia, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, or stroke, will benefit from a holistic, enriched environment with practice, right? Now, obviously, if you have a spinal cord lesion and it's your legs, or you have a stroke and it's your arm, or it's not motor at all, it's just cognitive because you have early Alzheimer's, obviously, we will change some aspects of what you need to control uh, we may change the creature, we may change the challenge, but the basic idea of something beautiful and creature-based and exploratory that combines exercise, movement, and thinking will always be there. But we've created more than a dolphin. We have a killer whale, um, we've made a little dragon, we've made jellyfish. So in other words, we're thinking we're working on hummingbirds. So in other words, you know, it's very his dark materials like. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And think about his dark materials, right? The, the concept is universal, but each person's creature might be different. Mm. So it's that combination of the fundamental principles that are invariant and then the particulars that you will tailor to the patient, to the body part, to the cognitive deficit. It's especially like the children's sort of changeable demons in early on as they have to, you know, learn. A lot exactly themselves right. so, mm, mm, I like that I like that comparison a lot 
So what do you think there are, do you think there are limits on, on what we can like, retrain the brain to do in, in what kinds of repair is, is possible? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, in other words, um, I, I think that we're going to have to complement this very holistic behavioral platform approach with more, my guess will be um, invasive device-based pharmacological approaches. But the nervous system is such that all those secondary things, whether it's an implantable electrode, whether you infuse stem cells into someone, whether you give them a drug, whether you brain stimulate non-invasively, none of those things will work unless they're multiplied on a very high intensity, high dose, enjoyable behavioral cardiovascular experience. Mm. So I, I absolutely don't think that that alone will solve everything, right? You're not going to behave your way out of Parkinson's disease. Right? You may slow progression, but if you're going to start, you know, doing DBS or giving drugs, I have no doubt in my mind that many of the failed trials with pharmaceuticals for neurological injury and disease is because they were never coupled with the proper behavioral experience. Mm. And let me give you an intuition so you understand the point I'm making. If I said to you, Josh, here's a pill Take it tonight, and tomorrow you'll wake up an expert tennis player. You would know that that's nonsense, right? It's just scientifically ill-posed. If I said, here's a pill that would improve the quality of your practice, which you still need to do, maybe it makes you concentrate better. Maybe it energizes you. That would make more sense. Similarly, now we switch over to injury. If I said, here's your injury, take this pill and you'll be better, it's equally silly. But the idea of coupling it with a training paradigm, and for example, there's beautiful work that's been done over the last several years on spinal cord injury, where you do epidural stimulation of the spinal cord in conjunction with very intense treadmill training, both in humans and rodents. That combination works impressively. So I would say, get your behavioral platform right first, then the adjuncts will start to work and we'll need the adjuncts. But what will not work is adjuncts with feeble rehab as usual, mm. which is where we've been. So you're saying for, for something like, uh, something as extreme even as, as Elon Musk's Neuralink technology or software, I don't even know how, what you would call it, hardware, mind control device, um, for for that to to succeed in in its even initial aims of of helping people you know improve or regain motor function in legs or, or from paralysis or brain injuries that it has to be coupled with some sort of game based environment. Right. I mean, I I, I think that um, you know there's an enormous amount of hype hype around Neuralink and what Elon Musk and I've actually been interviewed about this several times, um, but let's say that you take the cases where this notion is most valuable, which is people who have cervical spinal cord injury or they're locked in or brainstem strokes or ALS. Um, yes, I mean, there, if you're controlling other objects or your own body, let's say ultimately with EMG, of course you're gonna to have to practice how to do it. Now, somebody might say that maybe you should just practice in real life what you're doing. Um, my guess is that's just very boring. It's limiting. And to take your implantable electrodes for a spin, it would probably be more fun to do it in a gamified environment that makes you try the full repertoire of your potential capacities rather than just doing boring everyday tasks. Ultimately, of course, you'd graduate from that immersive environment to real life tasks. But I, my intuition is to get the intensity and doses needed, you should transition through this immediate, the intermediate um, immersive uh, stage. That's my guess. Mm. So you've also been involved in or, or been part of a few, like a group, <laughs> sorry, a group um, campaigning on the idea of, of neuro rights 
Um, do you want to do you want to give people a sense of of why you think we 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 need neuro rights? Yeah, I mean, I just need to make a full confession here. I mean, I was interviewed about this with actually a colleague of mine from Colombia, Rafa Yuste, mm. um, who I interviewed is, him last week. Yeah, I mean, Rafa's been you know the spearhead, not me. I, I, I he he, you know, as you know, he created the Morningside Group, and they had that paper in Nature in 2017, mm. and then they've gone on to say that this should be part of the Human Rights Charter, and there have been adoptions in Chile, for example, which I'm sure you talked to him about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, he and I mostly agree. Um, I think here's the thing. We should already have had it before you could get under the skull. See, mm-hmm. Rafa got very interested, got very concerned because you could now start to be invasive. You could actually get into, you could touch people's neurons. Mm-hmm. And he feels like this technological situation, which he feels is moving at breakneck speed, is an opportunity both to address this issue in the setting of these technological advances, but also maybe even retrofit to all the ways we're already manipulating people. Mm. I mean, I, you know, if you watch that documentary about Facebook, The Social Dilemma, and all the tricks that can be played on people, mm. you're already in need of neural rights there. Do you see? Propaganda in general. I mean, mm. you know, all the alt-right and, you know, all the blogs and what Trump did. I mean, there are many, many ways to spread misinformation and break people's rights long before you get an electrode under the skull into the brain. Do you see? So in other words, I, what I'm less convinced by is that it's a qualitative change. It's just more concerning going what we've already been doing before we got under the skull. Mm. So that's my way of saying absolutely we need them. And maybe we have a chance of making progress because we can do it preemptively in the setting of this new technology, whereas it would be very difficult retroactively to do it with what, for example, Facebook is doing, as pointed out in The Social Dilemma. Mm. But once you go down the road of thinking about these rights, we've been breaching them long before we got electrodes into people's brains. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm. So it's your sense that that we've already started to vi- that we've we can already reach into people's brain and and screw about with it. In that's what that's what's called propaganda, mm. right? Mm. Yeah. That's what advertising is, mm. right? You don't think they haven't had armies of psychologists learning how to manipulate you long before we got to this stage in neurotechnology, mm. right? So that's yeah. what I find kind of funny about this is. People are correct. Rafa is absolutely correct about this is the next generation of manipulation. But, but have you been asleep? This has <laughs> been going on for a long time. Mm. Yeah. I mean, this gives me an excellent, excellent opportunity to, to plug my book in which I talk all about Facebook and their screwy tactics for, for um, attempting to swing people's minds. So um, go buy it or check it out. Uh, yeah, and, and, and you could see, right, the problem here is if you don't put this in the context that I'm suggesting, then you could say that other than when you are putting chips in people's heads or electrodes in people's heads, everything else is fine. Mm. That's problematic. When we know the effects that they can have. Long before you touch someone's neuron. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's concerning. So, um, I want to. I want to thank you for your time. But before we finish up here, is there um, anything you would like to plug? Point people towards um, upcoming things you'd like to 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 plug? What anything you want to point out? No, I, I I I would I would I think the only thing I would say is that I think that, and I've used this example is is the case of what's happened to us with COVID. That it's been both a incredible success story with respect to the efficacy and speed of development of the vaccines. 
So a great success for the magic bullet monotherapeutic molecular biological approach to medicine. Mm. But on the other hand, the spectacular failure of doing anything about all the people with chronic diseases who died because they were obese, hypertensive, sedentary, and diabetic. Mm. And we need to have these holistic behavioral approaches we've been discussing today to try and make people more robust and less fragile in the face of an infectious disease. And that we need to understand that you can't treat chronic disease as an honorary infectious disease. And that we're gonna to have to think about behavioral, holistic, multimodal, complex interventions. Kind of neurosport for health and not just think that there's gonna be a pill for everything. Mm. Right? So that's what I hope people understand is that there are two different ways, a top-down and a bottom-up approach to doing medicine. And one gets all the credit and all the funding, but it's going to work when it comes to fighting viruses and bacteria. It's not so good when it comes to the diseases of modern civilization. Mm, that's that's an absolutely fantastic point on which to finish. Um, so, Professor Krakow, I want to I want to thank you for your time. Um, I will link um, all the work of yours I can find in the description below for people. Um, so, thank you very much. Thank you for a wonderful interview, and I look forward to your book. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, follow me on Twitter, or sign up to our mailing list. Thanks a lot to our sponsor, ExpressVPN, the number one most trusted VPN. Get lightning-fast connectivity with servers in 160 locations across 94 countries. Keep your browsing privacy safe with ExpressVPN and get a 35% discount on 12 months of ExpressVPN when you follow the link in the description below. Don't forget my book is now out and available to order on Amazon and on bookshop.org. That's Brexit, the Establishment Civil War. And most importantly, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.